0: Good day, ladies and gentlemen, bear with me. I'd like to pontificate for just a moment about why it is, I think, that conservative Catholics and traditional Catholics ultimately just can't really seem to get along, and I think it's a bit of a pipe dream to think that there will ever be some sort of getting along in that way. And I'll explain what I mean as we go here. First and foremost, uh, I use these terms, conservative Catholic and traditional Catholic, Equivocally, Um, in many cases, it's a state of mind. In fact, I've met people before who are attendees of the traditional liturgy and go to it virtually always, but really do just have a neo-modernist mindset. It's rare, but it does happen. And at the same time, I've met individuals who have attended the new mass their whole lives and who don't go to the traditional mass for whatever reason and are very much traditionalists in pretty much everything else they do except the way they go to Mass, and I don't know how that works because the Lex orendi is the Lex Credendi, the way that we pray changes what we believe, but maybe through a series of devotions, catechetical instruction, praying the Rosary, I don't know, other things, they've maintained a traditional Catholic lifestyle, so God bless them. So this isn't a universal, we're just speaking in general senses here. It can't be particular to every single person. Recently, I was watching a video, doesn't matter who, but he is a uh, very intelligent, I would call him conservative catholic. And I was watching his commentary on um I was watching his commentary on Bishop Schneider's new catechism, Credo. And again, this is a very very smart man. I'm not strawmanning anyone here and I'm I'm not going to name him because I'm not trying to start one of these stupid internet fights. I'm just using it as a for instance. And they were talking about, and he was speaking with another man, a very intelligent, very well-formed conservative Catholic, and they were talking about this new catechism by Bishop Schneider, and they sort of poo pooed this idea that there were ambiguities in the Second Vatican Council documents and sort of said that, well, you know, Bishop Schneider's idea that documents like Lumen Gentium and Unitatis Retingratio, which we'll get to a couple of those things in a second here. The idea that they contained things that were ambiguous and could lead to error, this is just absolutely silly. And I believe that these men who were saying that really believed that. And I don't believe they were malicious in saying that. I think, and I don't believe they hate Bishop Schneider. I don't believe they actually are malcontents in that sense. There are many like that, but I don't believe these men were. And I was thinking about why is it that Someone who is so intelligent, so articulate, and, and also this, this gentleman who has this podcast, he's not an unabashed supporter of Pope Francis. He doesn't believe that Pope Francis has taught a heresy in the small heresy, small H heresy sense, or in the error sense, as many traditionalists would say. Um, but he does believe Pope Francis has done a bad job as Pope, and he's admitted as much. But he's still in this position where the idea that the council documents could have put forth some sort of dangerous theological ideas, this was something that he just thought was absurd. So I thought, let's just look at a couple potential problems with the Second Vatican Council documents. And I say potential because we're just gonna discuss it. And then from there, you can ask yourself, do you think you'd come to the same conclusion as someone like him, or do you think you'd come to a conclusion as someone like me, and then we'll discuss why I think of a folk a folk a fellow like him, folks like him, and folks like me, come to this impasse, this irreconcilable difference, where it's going to ultimately come down to something like perception of reality, uh, as much as anything. So here is, um, if you're an anti-SSPX person, don't shoot the messenger. This is just a, a simple. Uh, you know, resource here. And there's just a couple that I thought were easy enough for the purposes of this video. So this essay, let's call it, uh, it's an article from a a magazine from years ago. But the point is, it's about some of the the problems of the Second Vatican Council. And here is one. It's the contamination of, right here, if you can see it, the contamination of doctrine with intrinsically anti-Catholic modern thinking. So connected to this unprecedented renunciation of error is another flagrantly grave assertion made by John the 23rd in his January 13th, 1963 Christmas address to the Cardinals. He said that doctrinal penetration must occur through doctrines more, perfectly, uh, more, perfect, ad, doctrines more perfect adhesion to fidelity to true, true doctrine. However, he followed this by explaining that true doctrine ought to be expressed using the forms of investigation and literary style of modern thinking, since to do so is to sustain the depositum fides classic doctrine, and is the way to recast it, and this ought to be done patiently, taking into account, taking into great account that all must be expressed in forms and propositions having a predominantly pastoral character. Let's click the footnote here. These concepts were specifically repeated by the Council in the decree Unitatis Rettingratio on Ecumenism, Article 6. So we're going to look at that from Unitatis Rettingratio in just a second here. But the idea is Pope John XXIII is saying doctrine needs to be expressed in ways that get with the times. Now, he said it in a more sophisticated way, but that's exactly what he said. So for our purposes, I think we should look at unitatis retin gratio, article 6, and see if that's actually what happens. So here is the document, unitatis retin I was saying it wrong. It's not retin gratio. Retin, retin gratio. And um, let's read article 6. Every renewal of the church is essentially grounded in an increase of fidelity to her own calling. Now that's true. Undoubtedly, this is the basis of the movement toward unity. Christ summons the church to continual reformation as she sojourns here on earth. That's a pretty dubious statement. Continual reformation? On the one hand, yes. On the other hand, that gives the impression that there needs to be change always. The church is always in need of this. I'm not really sure if that's true. Insofar as she is an institution of men here on earth. So does it mean the divine aspect of the church or does it mean the human aspect of the church? Thus, if in various times and circumstances, there have been deficiencies in moral conduct or in church discipline, or even in the way that church teaching has been formulated. Now, let's just pause there for a second. In the way that church teaching has been formulated. That's a very fancy way. It's a very sneaky way of saying doctrine. How do you formulate church teaching without using doctrines? Let's get back to what the rest of it says. um sorry i lost my place here oh church, church teaching has been formulated to be carefully distinguished from the deposit of faith itself so or even in the way the church teaching has been formulated to be carefully distinguished from the deposit of faith itself these canons should be set right at the opportune moment so the impression that's given here is essentially that the times change the church needs to Reform, as the times change, and it's possible that the church can be presenting doctrines in ways that just aren't with the times. That is one reading of it. One doesn't have to come down on the side of that being the infallible reading of it, but that is one reading of it. I'm I'm not being an absurd and unreasonable person here, I don't think. We'll continue with it. Church renewal has therefore notable ecumenical importance. Already in various spheres of the church's life, this renewal is taking place, the biblical and liturgical movements, the preaching of the word of God and catechetics, the apostolate of the laity, new forms of religious life, and the spirituality of married life, and the church's social teaching and activity, all these should be considered as pledges and signs of the future progress of ecumenism. This sentence is very much ambiguous in the sense of the unity in the ecumenical sphere is already taking place because of all of these things which are not defined. It is very easy to take this statement and for it to be. Well, ambiguous. Now let's look at what was alleged by this criticism of the Second Vatican Council using this statement of John the Twenty-third. He said, and, and think of this in light of what we just read. True doctrine ought to be expressed using the forms of investigation and literary style of modern thinking, since to do so is to sustain the depositum fides classic doctrine and is the way to recast it. That's exactly what that sentence, the, the article six said. The deposit of faith doesn't change, but we just change how we present it because there can be ways that are inadequate. That's what it's saying. and It's saying the same thing here. And this ought to be done patiently, taken into great account that all must be expressed in forms and propositions, having a predominantly pastoral character. Now let's look at how this might be something that could cause a problem if we look at former teaching. And remember, Redet In Grazio is not a document that is binding on Catholics. And if you don't believe me, you can look up what Archbishop Pozzo, who was speaking on behalf of the Ecclesia Dei, which was absorbed by the CDF, I think he said it in 2015, and he made it very clear in talking about negotiations with the SSPX, that Nostra Aetate, Unitatis Redit in Gratio, and, oh, I forgot the last one. doesn't matter. Um, One of the other documents had a pastoral aim and not doctrinal. And he said, it is not necessary to accept them in the the sense of them being of the faith. That's just what he said. You can look it up yourself. Okay. Um, And I know that there's going to be a critic of mine who's going to say, that's not exactly what he said. Listen, I'm paraphrasing, so just relax. Anyway, this article continues, liberals and modernists had already long recommended that classical doctrine be recast in forms imported from modern thinking. Doing so was specifically condemned by Pope Pius X in Peshendi, and his decree, Lamentabilisani, which condemned the following. So these are two things condemned by Pope Pius X, Pope St. Pius X in Um And, oh, sorry, the ideas were in Pesciendi and then the decree that followed. Um, was lamentably. So, number 63. The church shows herself unequal to the task of preserving the ethics of the gospel because she clings obstinately to immutable doctrines which cannot be reconciled with present-day advances. That's a negative way of saying, if she got with the times, it'd be better. The next one. The progress of the sciences demands that concepts of Christian doctrine about God, creation, revelation, the person of the incarnate word, the redemption, be recast. Hmm. And here is... Uh, a very important um, a note from uh, Humana Generis, which I actually would like to just bring that up here for a moment uh, in order to actually see it in its fullness because it's so important. So this is Humana Generis by Pope Pius XII. This is like Pope Pius XII's ascendi. This is an important document. Um, this is his, in a sense, sort of syllabus of errors. And it's a it's a document that's sadly used by the neo-modernist types to push evolution, which is against the spirit of the document. Nonetheless, it's used by them. But what does Pius XII say? This is paragraph or article 15. And he's talking about the modernists, essentially, the neo-modernists. And he says, moreover, they assert that when Catholic doctrine has been reduced to this condition, a way will be found to satisfy modern needs that will permit of dogma being expressed also by the concepts of modern philosophy, whether of immanentism, that's important in modernism, or idealism, or existentialism, or any other system. Some more audacious affirm that, that, um, that his can, or that, that, that this can and must be done, because they hold that the mysteries of faith are ever expressed by truly adequate concepts, but only by approximate and ever-changeable notions. So, the mysteries of faith are true, but we have to change how we talk about them because modernity, whatever, in which the truth is to some extent expressed, but is necessarily distorted. So, let's just pause there for a second. So, this is saying that the modernists will tell you that there is the truth and that doesn't change. So, in church speak, the deposit of faith is not going to change but there are inadequate ways of expressing it. That's another way of saying the way is distorted. There are two ways of saying similar things. Now, you could say there are accidental inadequacies. Sure, no one's saying that it's not good for things to be refined, but it is to say that it's deficient, and you could also say distorted or incomplete or whatever. And if we look just real quickly here, if we go back to um, Unitatis Retent in gratio, Let's just look at, um, well, the word deficiency. Um, there have been deficiencies in moral conduct or in church discipline, or even in the way that church teaching has been formulated. If we look at humana generis, um, in which the truth is to some extent expressed. Remember, if it's deficient, it's not fully expressed, but necessarily distorted. It's the same thing, We're saying the same thing. and And this is... What Pope Pius XII is saying is a real big problem. To actually say this, he continues, it's right here if you're following at home. Wherefore, they do not consider it absurd, but altogether necessary that theology should substitute new concepts in place of the old ones, in keeping with the various philosophies which, in the course of time, it uses as its instruments, so that it should give human expression to divine truths in various ways which are even somewhat opposed, but still equivalent, as they say. That's Hegelianism, if you understand what he's saying. They add that the history of dogmas consists in the reporting of the various forms in which revealed truth has been clothed, forms that have succeeded one another in accordance with the different teachings and opinions that have arisen over the course of centuries. So let's put this in layman's terms. The history of dogmas consists in reporting of the various forms in which revealed truth has been clothed, forms that have succeeded one another so changed time and time again in accordance with the different teachings and opinions that have arisen over the course of the centuries what he's saying here is and this is my reading and i'm just saying this because someone might read it differently but you're not um to find a problem here if you apply this logic to the second vatican council you're just being very reasonable this isn't a uh, out of the world, crazy conspiracy. Pope Pius XII is saying, if this is what you're asserting, then you're a neo modernist. That's what he's saying. That's what this document's about. Uh, maybe we can go quickly. Um, anyway, doesn't matter. You can see the title here um, concerning some false opinions threatening to undermine the foundations of Catholic doctrine. So if, if this document is about things that are false opinions that are threatening to undermine Catholic doctrine, and then we find those same ideas uttered in documents of the council, even if it's in spirit or implied, we've got a serious problem. And you're not crazy for saying that. Um, so he's to get back what he said here, forms that have succeeded one another in accordance with the different teachings that have arisen over the course of centuries. So we're having continual change, we're having continual renewal in how we teach things. And this is necessary, and I believe he even used the word necessary in here. Oh, yeah. Well, necessarily distorted. Um, but altogether necessary. That theology should substitute new content, etc. So, what does Unitatis Reditum Gratio say? It talks about church renewal has therefore notable ecumenical importance. This renewal is taking place. Um... New forms of the religious life, etc. Uh, and the sentence before, Christ summons the church to continual reformation. So that so Christ summons the church to continual reformation. So over and over again, we're going to reform, we're going to recast what we're saying. Humanae Generis is saying this is an error to think like that. That there must necessarily be new formulations of the faith that are recast. One and over and over again with the different teachings and opinions that have arisen over the centuries. I, I think this, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but to me, this is one very reasonable way of, in, of interpreting this. We haven't gone out on a limb about there being no Pope or, or, or the positive heresy taught by the Pope or whatever. We're just saying, we look at what is condemned by Pius XII, we look at what is condemned by Pius X, and then we compare that to the thought and work of John the 23rd and his thought thoughts and ideas that are formulated in one of the second Vatican council documents that's a very difficult thing to reconcile and we're not going to go into more errors here maybe we can at a different date i only just wanted to use this one because it was very simple and my goal here with this is, as I said at the outset, the reason why conservative Catholics and traditional Catholics are not going to be able to find any real common ground, I just, I'm not being pessimistic, I'm just saying I don't see it as being possible, is because, listen, I think I'm a reasonable person, I don't hate the church, I don't hate the Pope, I don't want the Second Vatican Council to be bad, I don't want the church to be bad. I really don't want anything bad to happen at all. And in fact, I didn't grow up a traditionalist. I didn't grow up a practicing Catholic at all. I believed in God and I believed in Jesus and these kinds of things in vague ways, but I didn't practice in my family. Then I found the faith, found the sacraments that I was baptized into and never really understood them. Then I became a conservative Catholic. And then I just kept reading, and I kept reading more Thomas, and I kept reading more Augustine. I, I wanted to get trained in the scholastic, classical way. And then I considered some of these criticisms of the council just out of curiosity, and I realized they made a lot of sense. It wasn't some conspiratorial uh, plan to undermine the church. It wasn't some, you know, dark fantasy I had about a church that was, you know, without a shepherd or something. That's, there's nothing there at all. It was, it was completely just out of intellectual honesty. And there are many people like me who just look at this, this one little presentation I just gave, and they see very clear, see if you can hear my dog in the background, uh, they can see very clearly that there is a problem here. If you look at it uh, in a pretty obvious way, a pretty plain reading of it when you compare those, it's not crazy. But the conservative types that would say to you, for example, there's no ambiguity in Vatican II, you're at, you know what you're talking about, just interpret it this way. Well, I'm sorry, but you can't make somebody perceive the clarity of something in a way that isn't clear. You can't make somebody perceive the clarity of a document when the document lends itself to unclarity. And this is where that loggerhead, you know, this, this conflict is going to come between the conservatives and the traditionalists. I, can't in good con- I cannot in good conscience say there's no problem there because linguistically, there are many problems there. Logically speaking, the basic ideas presented and what has been condemned in the past, what is being pre- presented in those documents could definitely fit the bill about what has been condemned in the past. I can't unsee that. Whereas the conservative wants you to think that it's not there. There's no way to get over that. It's an irreconcilable difference. One person perceives it in the way that I perceive it. Another person thinks that I'm wrong for perceiving that way but can't explain to me why. You see the problem there? And this is why ultimately conservatives and traditionalists are going to be at loggerheads. I also wanna say, um, I think a lot of people poo poo, the, cons- the traditional Catholic critiques of the Second Vatican Council as if they're just all about, you know, the stereotypical things. It's like, you know, these trads and their third secret of Fatima and whatever, you know, whatever it is. Um, but this is not fly-by-night theology. This is not fly-by-night Catholicism. This is a very sober reflection of the issues with the Second Vatican Council the last thing I'll finish with here is this document that I meant, this article that I mentioned real quickly. And here is an article. It's a few years old now, but this is, and I'm not going to read it. I'm just showing you it. You can look it up yourself. Archbishop Pozzo, who was speaking on behalf of the, of the church and and or on behalf of Rome and the, the you know, the, the Ecclesia Day Commission with negotiations with the SSPX, um, disputed Vatican II documents are non-doctrinal. And you can go into here and you can find it, um, Anyway, um, uh, here it is about um, Nostra Tate, o or Dignitatis Humani was the one I forgot, and Unitatis Redictum He said, they are not about doctrines or definitive statements, but rather about instructions and orienting guides for pastoral practice. One can thus legitimately continue to discuss these pastoral aspects after the proposed canonical approval of the SSPX in order to lead us further acceptable, blah, blah, blah. So, this is in the context of a negotiation between for canonical reasons with the SSPX, but the point is is that it is possible to be fully integrated into the life of the church as an order of priests according to the church, and believe that there are three documents at the council that are not binding on you as a Catholic because they're not doctrinal. Now you can say to what levels one must accept the wisdom of that pastoral nature? Well, that's a completely different question. But I just use this as an example. So, pray for reconciliation for the church with tradition because that is the only way. Because the one thing I will say to the conservative Catholics who are critics of the traditionalists like myself, I do believe most of them, not all of them, maybe I shouldn't say most, I do, be, I do believe a considerable amount of them um, take the positions they do take out of a good intention and a good instinct, which is very Catholic, which is I'm going to do everything in my power to give the benefit of the doubt to the powers that be because the gates of hell will not prevail kind of mentality. And I'm not believing the gates of hell prevailed. I'm just using it as an example. So I think that's good. And I, and I do think if a Pope Pius XIII were to, you know, become pope tomorrow and he were to come down with a bunch of stamped it locked at anathemas that vindicated the traditionalists, I think the conservatives for the most part would get in line as quick as anybody. So I, I want to give them that anyway. As always, let me know what you think in the comments. This has been The Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.